Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Perhaps you or someone you know has problems tolerating prescription drugs. You know, that person who gets every side effect, the person who can only take half or a quarter dose of a medication. Well, it's likely that person has a mutation in our gene of the week, CYP3A4. But this mutation is more than just a way uh, to save money on prescription dosing. It's also a significant risk for cancer. Perhaps especially in African-American populations. We'll be talking more about that on this week's program. We'll also discuss exciting new findings in breast cancer therapies and the new drug for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, approved by the FDA recently. Remember the ice bucket challenge? Well, this is where that money went, developing this drug. We'll have some science-based practical health advice a little later on in the program, and of course, answers to your calls and emails. First, let's move to that ice bucket challenge. Uh, You'll probably remember that where people uh, were raising money for uh, ALS. ALS is a truly terrible disease. It's, It's progressive paralysis caused by damage to the motor neurons of the spinal column, sometimes also of the base of the brain. Unlike other types of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, it's not associated with numbness. So a person's sensation remains intact, but their ability to move is absent. And because it's even worse than a transection of the spinal cord, there's no tonic stimulation of the muscles. So people's muscles become atrophic after a while. People have lived for as long as 15 years on ventilators with ALS, although the average uh, length of stay after diagnosis is about 18 months. It's a very bizarre thing, and many drugs have been researched. This uh, drug, now released as Relivrio, uh, was recently approved by the FDA. It was based on some fairly preliminary small studies, but it was approved because we literally have nothing else, and it looked promising enough to go ahead and uh, introduce it. The drug is very bizarre. It's basically a bile acid uh, complexed with taurine, an amino acid that can be produced in the body, so it's not one of the essential aminos. And the mechanism of why this oral agent works for ALS is completely murky. This was the result of a study where they just looked at it in an ALS mouse model. It seemed to work. They developed it. And I'm going to tell you about the clinical trial that uh, was done because it, like I said, is promising. It was only in people who were recent ALS uh, diagnosis, 18 months, and they had to be sick enough that their vital capacity was 60% of predicted. Vital capacity is your ability to breathe in and then breathe out. So your uh, essentially lung function, right? Because if you take the deepest possible breath, you're not just using your diaphragm, you're using all your accessory muscles. And if you breathe out as fast as you can, well, then you're going to be emptying your lungs as thoroughly as possible, but you're also going to be using every muscle you've got to do it. So based on height and age, we can pretty much predict what it should be, and this is a good way to screen for ALS. They didn't use that in the study, however. They used a questionnaire, 12 questions that evaluate fine motor, gross motor, uh, function of the cranial nerves in the head and neck, respiratory function like, like speech, swallowing, handwriting, cutting food, turning over in bed, being able to walk or climb stairs, and whether or not you were short of breath. And each one of these is scored from one to four, and the higher the score, the better your functional ability. So the patients were put on the drug at a twice daily dose after a ramp up for one week, and they were and the study was run for 24 weeks. And at the end of that week, there was a decent 
slightly significant deviation, 0.03, which means about a one out of 30 uh, chance that this was due to chance. And that's decent enough. It was a fairly significant amount of uh, deviation. So basically, over the course of 24 weeks, the two groups diverged by about two and a third point. I don't have good data on the uh, study. I didn't pull the published study. I'm just reading this off of the FDA uh, package insert. So I don't know what the absolute deterioration was, but I would anticipate that it's very much like other neurodegenerative diseases in that this didn't completely halt the rate of decline, but it slowed it. If that means buying you an extra six months off a ventilator, well, that's a significant improvement. So I'm very hopeful about this preliminary stuff. The drug is out there now and will be used in appropriate patients. It has a few drug interactions, nothing serious, a lot of GI upset, uh, nothing that can't be handled. So it's looking pretty exciting. All right, I promised you a couple of advances in breast cancer. First of all, right now the standard of care for management of breast cancer in its early stages is almost always surgical removal of the lump or surgical removal of the breast, followed by radiation and or chemotherapy, depending upon the specifics of the agent. We have really three different kinds of breast cancer. We have uh, people who are estrogen receptor positive. We have breast cancers which are HER2 new positive, and these respond very well to taxane-type drugs. And we have people who are triple negative. Triple negative breast cancer has been the toughest nut to crack, but we're starting to make real progress in that. And this latest study takes it a step further with a new kind of biopsy. And so with the new chemotherapy that's uh, being done, uh, this was a trial looking at the likelihood of breast cancer returning in patients who are in complete remission after receiving chemotherapy and radiation, but without surgery. This was a non-controlled trial. They had 31 patients who had a complete response to chemotherapy. And by complete response, we mean using this new type of biopsy called image-guided vacuum-assisted core biopsy. And this has the ability to look, make a deep dive into the cells and identify that there is no residual cancer in the scar. Uh, we've improved so much with chemotherapy that even people with triple negative breast cancer are now getting to a complete clinical response in 60%. So this study just is a, a first step in demonstrating they only went out for uh, a short period of time, about two years. So we need a longer-term study before this changes the way we manage breast cancer. But I see it as an indicator that we are really starting to get to the bottom of the, the controls, the microstructure. And this next uh, story, also about breast cancer, emphasizes this. Now, if a woman dies from breast cancer, she almost always dies from tumor metastasis to the lungs or to the brain. And that's why after surgery, we routinely give chemotherapy. But in this study was looking at, well, what's the downside of doing chemotherapy? And they used an animal model. I want to emphasize this. And what they showed is that some of the breast cancer chemotherapy drugs actually induce the expression of factors in the lung that make the lung more likely to get metastasis. Part of the innate immune system is this thing called complement. And I won't go into the gory details here because, quite frankly, they are not in my brain. It's really complicated. But complement is part of that initial inflammatory cascade that allows you to attack something that you don't have antibodies against. 
so-called innate immunity. And complement in the case of the lungs, the complement that is created by the inflammation from the chemotherapy actually recruits uh, cells called myeloid-derived suppressor cells. So these are white blood cell or bone marrow-derived cells, similar to white blood cells, that are suppressor cells of immunity. And the inflammation from the chemo actually causes these to go up. They migrate to the side of the metastasis, which in this case would be a small, tiny, not even a fragment, a single cell of breast cancer that escaped and managed to wash up in the lung. And what they found is that they can use chemical therapy to block this and reduce uh, metastasis. Now, these agents are being used in animals. There's no pharmaceutical that we can just, you know, whip off of our storage shelf and start using in uh, women, but it's a proof of concept. And as I said, the idea that our chemotherapy has gotten very good, maybe we can also have drugs that guard against metastasis. And so I'm feeling really optimistic about the future of oncology and uh, our ability to turn cancer into a chronic disease that needs to be monitored is no longer going to kill you. And that is exactly the success we achieved with most cases of HIV. And it is a true holy grail, in my opinion, being able to reverse. Probably we won't see, we may see that to a certain extent in my lifetime. This particular treatment works by altering the tumor microenvironment for the metastasis. And of course, much of functional medicine. Uh, adjuvant and complementary therapy for cancer is aimed at doing exactly that. Part of the difference in response to COVID is about the microenvironment, the level of inflammation in the lung, in the rest of the body. And this is true for cancer as well. Inflammation is pro-cancer in terms of suppressing the immune system through a a host of mechanisms, some of which we may be able to reverse with drugs. Useful science-based advice for uh, medicine. So starting at the top, uh, you've heard of time-limited eating. Well, it turns out that that when you time your meals is going to make a big difference in your success for both weight loss and reversal of diabetes. This is the, there are several studies here that I'm going to, uh, drop down into one, but the, the studies involved two different eating regimens. Uh, one was just a group of overweight people who were not athletic and they were matched for their morbidity. They put them on two different eating regimens, uh, eating their first meal within an hour after waking up or waiting for about five hours before eating. And they were all eating within a 10-hour window. So even though the meals were identical, what they found was that the delayed eaters had lower levels of leptin. Leptin is the satiety hormone. And they were more likely to feel hungry and crave uh, unhealthy foods. Uh, A second study was in San Diego, and they looked at 137 firefighters They were told to follow a Mediterranean diet for 12 weeks, but about half ate their meals within that 10-hour window of 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., or 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., rather, uh, and the rest spread them out over 14 hours. The time-restricted firefighters had several markers for improved health. They actually, over 12 weeks, dropped their blood pressure, blood sugar, and cholesterol, and they didn't notice any fatigue. And it's pretty clear that the optimal time of day to eat is early in the day and not in the evening, which, you know, if you stop and think about it for a second, makes a great deal of sense. Our next bit of useful advice is about early physical therapy for back pain. Now, there are several uh, studies. This was uh, the British because they have a really good analysis of healthcare, but it was also uh, co-researched with an author at Johns Hopkins. Uh, 
basically what they did was they looked at who came in with back pain and needed to go on to get steroid injections or MRI scans or visit an emergency room within the next 30 days. And low back pain is a major cost to any healthcare system. In the United States, it's thought to cost about $1.8 billion annually, and that's for people who don't get surgery. And of course, it's also one of the major reasons people go to the emergency room. So in this study, they did a retrospective, and they looked at what the insurance paid for, what Medicare and private insurance paid for, and they had this you know big data, beta, database that would tell them. And what they found was that patients who received early physical therapy after presenting to their doctor with back pain were about half as likely to go to the ER or get a referral to a chiropractor or a pain specialist. They were about 30% less likely uh, to receive uh, an epidural steroid injection, and they were 43% less likely to get an MRI. All of these are very, very significant. And the overall cost actually came in a little bit lower even when you paid for the physical therapy. So what I was taught, low these many years, about back pain is backed up by all of this. When a patient gets back pain, when you get back pain, if you have a muscle strain or something benign that's going to get better within a week, you can take over-the-counter analgesics and you don't need to see a doctor. If you need to get antispasmodic drugs, you're probably going to have to come in and see me or see your primary care doctor. But it's getting back and starting moving early, and that's why early physical therapy is so good. It addresses a patient's pain and their physical limitations, but it also makes them feel safe about movement within a range of what doesn't hurt too much. And if people haven't resolved within a couple of weeks of stretching and taking over-the-counter analgesics, it's time for them to go to physical therapy. I tend to use a one-week threshold, but that's because my patients leave the office when they present with back pain. They leave the office with a set of exercises and a graded sort of suggestion for what they're supposed to be doing. The longer you stay immobile or walking funny or moving funny, the longer you're going to be immobile, walking funny, and moving funny. And, of course, because you're not resolving, you're going to end up with interventions like steroid injections and MRIs. And as I've told this story many times, and I'll continue to tell it again, the MRI just doesn't give you what you really need because the MRI shows you things that you have that may not be causing your pain. Just about everybody over the age of 50 has evidence for disc disease and evidence for spinal arthritis. But most of the people over 50 walking around without back pain will have those changes. And when you see those changes up on a light box and the doctor with the white coat points to them and say, ah, there's your pain, I can see your pain right there. All we need to do is fix this or fix that. And they leave out the fact that you're going to have to cut through about, well, modestly six inches of your flesh to get to the area they're pointing out on the x-ray. There's a lot of flesh between the spine and the rest of the body. It's not trivial to cut through that tissue, and it shouldn't be done lightly. And I'm afraid that we have a set of perverse incentives in our society, a bias to want to do everything, and a, a certain passivity that I think the medical system is enforced. Bottom line, don't do heavy lifting, but keep moving. Your back pain will get better faster if you're moving. Now, this is not you know, paralyzing back pain, that's a completely different situation and needs to be evaluated immediately. But most back strains really benefit enormously by early mobilization. 
I promised you a gene of the week, and it's just about time to do that. So this one is the CYP3A4, and I think it's got particular relevance, this, this gene, because it is a detoxification gene, but it's also being weaponized by our still effective weapon against COVID-19, which is Paxlovid. Paxlovid is still working well. And part of the reason it's working well is it is a direct inhibitor of viral replication. Very analogous to taking a cyclovir or valley cyclovir for a herpes outbreak. You slow down the ability of the virus to reproduce. The problem with Paxlovid is that the drug that works, that slows down the replication, gets broken down very quickly by 3A4. So in order for the drug to hang around in your bloodstream long enough, it has to be co-packaged with another drug that inhibits uh, 3A4. A few weeks ago, I told you about the CYP1B1, which is so significant, a risk factor for breast cancer. Well, this one also has some cancer risk factors associated with it. This one is associated with turning estrogen into a metabolite that tends to be associated with PMS. So people who have an upregulation of this enzyme are more likely to get PMS. But getting back to why CYP3A4 is important, anyone who's taken Paxlovid probably saw that long list of drugs that you probably shouldn't take if you're on Paxlovid because you're going to get toxically high levels of them. Well, that's because those drugs are metabolized primarily by 3A4. And it's a long list of drugs. Over 50% of pharmaceuticals that are commonly given are metabolized primarily through this pathway. So we're going to talk about a particular mutation of CYP3A4 that you can find out if you've got from just processing your 23andMe or processing one of the other uh, genetic uh, things out there and running it through a decoder ring. Those are becoming, I think, a really important part of functional medicine and one I feel really comfortable telling you about. So when you have this 1B mutation, you don't make as much of this enzyme, which means you don't break down the drugs and you don't, and hence your tendency to have more side effects from the drugs. But In not breaking them down, you also increase the number of reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species are like kryptonite to DNA. They want to detach and stick, uh, damage DNA. And they, once they've damaged that DNA, you're up, it's up to your proofreaders to keep you from developing cancer in that cell the next time it divides. The people who carry either a single or two copies of this show statistically significant associations with increased risks of cancer. Uh, The best studies have shown prostate cancer among African populations uh, or African ancestry populations, and uh, those with a homozygous, a GG, also have increased risk for ovarian cancer. And so far as I know, there's not a racial study that differentiates that. So let's talk for a moment about this concept of inducers and inhibitors. So we talked about uh, Paxlovid containing a deliberate inhibitor, and that's where we started out. But there's a lot of natural inhibitors, and some of these are going to sound a little bit familiar to you. One of them, for example, is grapefruit in all of its forms. When you eat grapefruit or drink grapefruit juice, it inhibits the action of the of the 3A4 in your intestines. There are other agents that you might take, two different antibiotics, uh, clarithromycin, erythromycin, uh, diltiazem, which is a uh, drug for uh, seizures, uh, itraconazole, which is a drug for fungal infections, ketoconazole, another fungal 
uh, infection drug, verapamil, a common uh, blood pressure medication, and golden seal, which lots of people are probably taking right now in an antiviral herbal medication because it contains a lot of berberine and it's good for fighting off viruses. But all of these are potent inhibitors of CA4 and can therefore make your, if you are already weak at breaking down drugs, you probably don't want to combine these with pharmaceuticals that have a narrow therapeutic range, which therapeutic range means this is a drug that if you've got, let's say, twice the normal blood level, you're going to get into trouble. And a broad therapeutic range would be a drug where you could have 10 times the effective blood level and still not be made sick by the agent. But one of the interesting things about 3A4 is that there are lots of inducers, things that will make it work better. You'll make more copies. So inducers essentially amplify after, on the average, about a week, they amplify the drug. And this could be you know, fairly significant because it could, in the case of, say, uh, St. John's wort, it could have an effect on uh, increasing the effects of certain anesthetics, which are activated by 3A4. People who take phenobarbital for seizures often require a fairly high dose, and they will have a higher probability of running through drugs and breaking them down faster. So they may need higher doses of all sorts of things to get a clinical result. This is particularly important if you're thinking about, say, chemotherapy, where you need to achieve an effective drug dose. There's also some really important sexual dimorphisms here. Uh, Women have much higher levels of 3A4 compared to male tissue samples. Uh, It's about a 30% increase in uh, the amounts. That's likely due to the fact that 3A4 helps break down estrogen. And I have not found a study looking at comparing premenopausal women to postmenopausal women. But I'm beginning to think that the difference, that there's really three kinds of women. There's premenopausal women, postmenopausal women, and postmenopausal women on estrogen. And I actually think that much of what we think we know about how drugs work probably is wrong for one or more of these groups because we haven't taken into account the rather profound effect that estrogen levels have. And speaking anecdotally, when I went through menopause, I found that I had a much harder time breaking down drugs. I've never had problems with drug side effects in my life until post-menopause. And there was a very sudden shift in a number of my blood markers, uh, but also very much in this. It's also interfered with by inflammation. So a person who has a high C-reactive protein, and sometimes that could be with cancer or it could be with an infection, Uh, It's very relevant if you are, say, in your immediate post-COVID phase uh, because or or are co-infected with a bacteria of any kind because that will raise your C-reactive protein quite high and that's going to make you less able to break down drugs. It's really, really interesting because when you do this, you can get into serious trouble kind of innocently. So, for example, if a person is taking simvastatin, which is an anti-cholesterol drug that lowers your LDL cholesterol, if you also start taking erythromycin or clarithromycin, claritin, uh, not not claritin, excuse me, biaxin, uh, if you start taking those at the same time as your simvastatin, it drastically increases your risk of muscle damage and muscle breakdown from the statin. That's otherwise a fairly rare effect. Another thing is uh, diltiazem and verapamil. These are drugs that are blood pressure medications. They're also used for rate control in atrial fibrillation, both widely prescribed drugs. If you mix them with prednisone, you can actually get an overdose of the prednisone because you don't break it down and you have higher levels of an active metabolite called uh, prednisolone. 
There's also some interference between estrogen and antidepressants. Uh, So basically you get uh, competition inhibition because they're fighting with each other. So this is... Uh, this is a very important gene to be aware of, particularly if you have that history of difficulty with drugs. You definitely want to consider getting yourself tested for that. So what's going to work to improve your detoxification in general? Well, there's some real superfoods here. Basically, onions, garlic, green tea, pomegranate, cruciferous vegetables, grapefruit, assuming that you're not on a drug that uh, is broken down by 3A4, broccoli sprouts, cold water fish, wild-caught, not farmed, uh, lentils, beans, and organic meats. Meats are actually pretty good for detox, as long as they don't contain pesticides and hormones. Uh, Other things that neutralize toxins, garlic, asparagus, Nuts, particularly sesame and, uh, sesame and mustard seeds, ginger, and pumpkin. Yeah, pumpkin's a good detox agent. I'm still trying to figure out how to get more pumpkin in my diet, but I'm I'm scouring the Pinterest for pumpkin recipes to see what I can come up with. So, time to go to some emails. Uh, our first email is a follow up from believe last week's show or the show or the week before from Mardine in Santa Cruz. Mardine writes, dry eye and sea buckthorn oil. Uh, Following your recommendation, I've been using sea buckthorn by rubbing a few drops along the edges of my eyelids and it has helped my dry eye tremendously. I've recommended it to my mother and sister and they both report it's helping them as well. A few weeks ago, you discussed treatments for dry eyes, including sea buckthorn oil, but you didn't describe how it should be used. It sounded like it could be taken internally as well. Is that true? Is one method better than the other, or would it make sense to do both? So let me just say, Mardine, that I believe that the uh, dose is around 500 milligrams a day. So let's get that out uh, in the open. The reason I like to use the oral method is because you also get some advantage for your uh, private parts. Vaginal dryness is something that is often associated with uh, getting older and eye dryness as well. I have given this also to people with Sjogren's orally, and they've noticed improvement in their dry mouth, which at some level doesn't entirely make sense to me because uh, Sjogren's is an attack on the salivary glands, but I'm not going to argue with improvement, right? I'm not going to tell someone they're not better because I don't know the mechanism. Our next email comes from Liz in Pacific Grove. Liz writes, I'm a 77, one-half-year-old female who very recently had a CT for coronary artery calcium and scored 18. At age 60, I scored zero and also zero at age 69. My doctor told me that he thought the side effect risk of going on medication for cholesterol weighed more heavily than risk involved in a score of 18. He suggested a recheck in another 12 to 24 months. I wanted to take your take on his weighting as well as suggestions for what I can do to keep my score from going up further. I have well-controlled blood cholesterol and do my best to eat close to a Mediterranean diet. Other than well-controlled glaucoma and an overactive bladder, I'm in good health. Thanks in advance for your reply and your terrific show. Well, Liz, let me start by saying that calcium deposition in body tissue does go up with age. The difference between age uh, 69 and age 77, however, is not that great. You know, it's about eight and a half years. So why so much? Possibly inflammation, possibly blood pressure, because calcium is kind of forming there in, in injured tissue, also possibly any uh, inflammation from any source. And as we get older, we become more inflamed. I'd love to know what your high sensitivity C-reactive protein is now and then. But nevertheless, we're going to move to talking about some suggestions for what you can be doing. Continuing to exercise is very important. 
uh, continuing to monitor your high-sensitivity C-reactive protein and try to get that below one. Things that can help with getting it below one are things like omega-3 fatty acids, uh, curcumin at doses of maybe 750 milligrams a day of a highly absorbed curcumin. These are my mainstays for trying to lower inflammatory markers. Boswellia and berberine also have some potential for helping. And I want you to make sure that you're tracking your blood sugar because insulin is pro-inflammatory. And if you're developing insulin resistance, which does happen as we get older, that may account for why you suddenly shifted. But I have a concrete suggestion for you, and it got me, which is vitamin K2. And I thought as I was thinking about how I would answer you that I would go take a look at vitamin K2 and see what recent research has been done. And I came across a wonderful article that came from uh, the British Medical Journal. And it was written by a series, a bunch of cardiologists looking at vitamin K in not just coronary calcium scores, but also preventing the progression of microvascular disease, helping prevent the progression of heart failure, particularly diastolic dysfunction, which is primarily due to microvascular disease, calcium deposits in the capillaries, in other words, aortic stenosis, which is where the valve develops a calcium deposit, and overall arterial stiffness, which is associated with hypertension and stroke. So it's not just vitamin K. It's a whole host of things. And the science is extremely strong. There's also an alarmingly high presence of vitamin K deficiency in the general population of the United States. And it has a huge role because it activates a protein that's an anti-calcification protein. It's called matrix GLA protein. And this matrix GLA protein actually can be measured in the blood, or actually what they measure is the inactive form of it. It has to go through a series of chemical reactions after it's made in the cell. And one of these chemical reactions is catalyzed by vitamin A, K2. Where this really got interesting for me, Liz, is that our blood thinners for atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease up until very recently were vitamin K antagonists like Coumadin or Warfarin. And vitamin K antagonists, we just thought, well, that, you know, that vitamin K1, that's we're going to antagonize that and then the blood won't clot as easily. But what we didn't realize by antagonizing K1, we were also antagonizing K2 and we were increasing the risk of calcium deposits in the tissues, the vasculature, the blood vessels, the valves, the capillaries. We were actually aggravating that. And this has been fully established now because vitamin K uh, antagonism is across the board. As I said, there's a blood level for the matrix G protein, so that's extremely useful. And there's been some studies looking at exactly what's going on with this protein. If you have low vitamin K and you don't have activated MGP, you're going to get cells in the vascular smooth muscle, those cells that are sitting in the walls of the arteries, and they're going to actually start to differentiate. Remember, they have, they, they have the ability to change into other cells. They're going to change into cells that have the property of chondrocytes and osteoblasts. They're going to start making bone matrix in the arterial wall, and that matrix is going to get calcium depositing in it. This MGP also inhibits something called bone morphogenic protein 2, which is found in heavily expressed in atherosclerotic lesions, and particularly in states of inflammation and oxidative stress, the ones that cause heart attacks, in other words. So a recent study looking at arterial stiffness is very persuasive here. Uh, They did three months of stopping Coumadin and putting people on Rivaroxabin. I'm sorry, let me try that again. Rivaroxabin, which is a drug like Eloquis. It's one of the 
factor 10A inhibitors. What they found was that when they took people off of this, the vitamin K deficiency disappeared, which we would expect. It was reduced, it was reduced massively, uh, 100 to 2% for inactive prothrombin and about half for inactive osteocalcin. Then they measured the arterial stiffness, and this is only in three months. And what they found was this very significant reduction in arterial wall stiffness. In other words, hardening of the arteries can be reversed. And there's plenty of genetic data showing that people who have a flawed protein are more likely to get calcium deposition. And the whole reason we started doing these CT scans in the first place to look at calcification of the arteries was because we had people with normal cholesterol and low risk factors getting heart attacks. And we're like, well, what's up with this? And these are the people who had really high calcium scores in their arteries, probably because they have a muted version of this MGP protein. But wait, there's more. Vitamin K deficiency is very prevalent in people with chronic kidney disease. It's also very prevalent among people on hemodialysis, people who have had renal transplant. It's a chicken and the egg situation. The lower your vitamin K, the more rapidly your kidneys deteriorate. The more rapidly your kidneys deteriorate, the lower your vitamin K. And as I said before, there's also a connection with congestive heart failure and taking vitamin K in preserves left ventricular diastolic function. So in people with that kind of heart failure, high-dose vitamin K is a good idea. It's found in the diet, but it's really hard to get enough at the levels that we're talking about to be actionable here. Vitamin K1, that's the blood clotting one, that's in leafy green vegetables. That's why when people are on warfarin, we limit their vegetable consumption, which always rubbed me the wrong way. Vitamin K2 is really primarily present in fermented food. And there's an association with uh, vitamin K levels, uh, vitamin K2 levels in different populations. For example, Asian populations, particularly Japanese who eat more natto, that's a fermented food. They They get high levels of vitamin K2 and they have, of course, drastically lower levels of heart disease. Almost all people over the age of 40 have a somewhat deficient level of vitamin K2. And the the effective oral dose, you want to get the longer chain, so that's MK7, MK8, uh, is about 180 to 300 micrograms per day. And there's plenty of epidemiologic evidence showing that uh, intake of vitamin K1 and K2 reduces overall mortality as well as cardiovascular mortality. The other cool thing is in doses that are quite high, there doesn't seem to be any adverse effects. So we don't have, nobody has set a toxicity range. I would caution against massive amounts of vitamin K2 until that's studied, however, because massive amounts of things often have an unintended consequence, and it's best to stay within the doses that have been demonstrated in scientific studies to actually have the clinical effect. More is not necessarily better. So I hope that that answered your question and probably then some. Now this will be of interest to many of my listeners. Tinnitus. Uh, Digital therapy may rewire the brain to improve tinnitus. There's a cell phone app out there that combines white noise, active game-based therapy, and counseling to help rewire the brain to provide relief from tinnitus symptoms. This was a randomized control trial with results at 12 weeks showing patients with tinnitus reported clinically meaningful reductions in ratings of annoyance, inability to ignore unpleasantness, and loudness after using a digital app. It's called a polytherapeutic prototype. And uh, as I said, it focuses on relief, relaxation, and attention-focused retraining. The idea is that rewires the brain that de-emphasizes the sound of the tinnitus just to a background noise that's meaningless and has no relevance. That, that, you know, the ticking of the clock that you stop hearing because 
it's always ticking and you just have to stop and listen for it to hear it. Let's turn the tinnitus into that. There's a lot of people who suffer. Maybe 15% of the adult population has some degree of this. And about 120 million people worldwide are severely affected. It has been identified from a wide variety of infections. Uh, it's actually been identified as a side effect of COVID-19 vaccination, which is makes me sad. But it can really affect a person's mental health. In this study, the control was an, a white noise app, a popular white noise app for tinnitus, and an, something called the Up Silent. So these people got Bluetooth bone conduction headphones and the Smart Tome app and a Bluetooth neck pillow for sleep and some written counseling materials. And the control group got the white noise and in-ear wired headphones. Now, both groups uh, reported some reductions at 12 weeks, but it was significantly more in the up-silent group. We're talking about 65% of the study group versus 43%, and that is statistically significant. So also, it's an app. So I think uh, we can say that the presentation here is self-interested because it is an app and they, I'm sure, get some, they have some way of getting money for it. But on the other hand, if you're suffering from tinnitus, you might want to go looking for this up-silent group and see if you can find the app. The company is called True Silence. And while the presenter for this did have a financial interest, I do not. I just have an interest in trying to get my patients to feel better few minutes left. Let's check for emails, no emails to mention. So here's a little fun fact. Uh, COVID-19 infection is a major cause of telogen, acute telogen effluvium. So that's where suddenly your hair starts falling out. It's non-scarring hair loss. It usually occurs about three months after a stressful event, and it can last up to six months. And so this was a cross-sectional study, and they used what's called the hair pull test. So the hair pull test is basically you grab some some hair and pull and see how much hair you can pull away with just your fingers. And if you've got greater than 10% of uh, the hair in your hand coming out, that's telogen effluvium. And some people will come to my office, I often see this, where they're just, I'm my hair is really thinning. I've got all this hair dropping uh, onto the floor. What I have to ask him is, okay, I want you to stop and think back three months ago and tell me if there was any major psychological or physical stressor or bad infection, because that's the most common source of this. And yes, I will check your thyroid, but a lot of the time it's this, and you just have, just have to sit it out in the meantime, of course, you'll probably have started taking a biotin pill because you read about that helping hair growth. Well, either that or the telogen effluvian goes away. It's basically the, the body trying to conserve energy. So you spend a lot of energy growing your hair. I read somewhere that we grow 12 feet, 12 linear feet of hair per day. And of course, that's protein and we have to make it and it takes energy. So if you're stressed and your system is under siege, it wants that energy and it just turns off hair growth. Now, once hair growth turns off, after about three months, those hairs fall out. So you've always got a certain percentage of your hair falling out and a certain percentage of it in the resting phase. And that will fall out at the end of the resting phase, which is three months long. When you bump a whole bunch of extra hair into the resting phase, you get this unusual hair loss, and it is emotionally very disturbing, hopefully not so disturbing that it triggers more hair loss three months later. A quick little sci-fi weirdness that I came across, uh, somebody has developed a mask that looks like a regular N95 mask, but it has a biosensor containing these synthetic molecules, which are like antibodies, they bind to specific proteins and pathogens. So once these aptamers identify the COVID-19 uh, protein, 
a transistor is activated that sends an alert to an app on the mask wearer's phone. And they, they tested this for proof of concept by spraying fluid containing the SARS-CoV proteins in an enclosed room. And they found the sensors reacted to as little as 0.3 microliters of virus. That's much less from than the amount of virus that spread with talking and 70 times less than the amount of virus released in a single sneeze. Now, they've also got aptamers that will detect H1N1, swine flu, and H5N1, but human trials are yet to come. If uh, It could be an important tool, they say, if for working in spaces with poor ventilation where the risk of getting infected is high. I'm just, you know, I meet my cinematic brain immediately went to a movie, maybe a TV movie, or there's no more TV movies. It's all Hulu and Netflix movies. But anyway, where people are wearing this mask and people are in, let's say, a crowded space, like, oh, a subway tunnel or something. And suddenly everybody's phone app starts to vibrate and buzz. And there's a massive rush to the exits, like what happened at Halloween in was it Hong Kong or Korea? I, I don't remember, but this this horrible, I think it was Korea, South Korea, this horrible crush where people were killed because everyone was trying to get away uh, down this passageway and they there just wasn't any way for the people to get through. I I wonder if this would actually be a good idea or a very bad idea. You sometimes have to think through the unintended consequences. So one last little antiviral thing, because, hey, we are post-Thanksgiving and heading into viral season. Time to dust off your masks and carry them around and think about using them in indoor spaces with lots of people flowing through them and poor ventilation. I know I don't want to either. I also highly recommend spraying um, colloidal silver spray in your nose because that actually helps reduce the ability of a uh, virus to uh, get in to your nose. But uh, echinacea, right? People are always asking me about this. If you're trying to prevent colds, you want to be sure that you're using an ethanol extract of echinacea roots. These are the ones that block rhinovirus. If you're drinking an echinacea tea or a water extract, you actually might increase the growth rate of rhinovirus in your nose. So let me say that again. You want alcohol extracts of this stuff, not water extracts. And who knew or thought that those would be different? Certainly not me. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.